It's been a weird week. Um, so I don't know if some of y'all saw my post on Facebook. Um, I realized this week that it's been exactly 20 years ago that I took my first call in ministry as a youth pastor at our mother church, Christ Presbyterian in Olive Branch. And I'll never forget that date because my first Sunday was two days before 9-11. So my first week in gospel ministry, and I already knew I didn't know anything, (laughs) um, but it was spent trying to help a group of teenagers, some of whom are in this room, try to process the most significant event in their lifetimes up to that point, and mine. And I learned very quickly that ministry was not about me. And uh, two weeks ago, which by the way, very thankful for Brian preaching uh, last week. He's a good friend of mine. Um, I'm, I'm sure he did an awesome job, so thank you all for... Um, showing up and supporting him last Sunday as well. But two weeks ago, we left David standing over the corpse of the giant Goliath. After that, David returns from battle and he presents the head of Goliath to Saul. And now when we get to chapter 18, a lot of things are going to happen really quickly. Um, so let's dive in. Uh, that's enough of an introduction. Verse, eight, uh, verse 1, chapter 18, says this. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. So David is no longer an employee. Um, David is now a permanent member of Saul's household. But what I want to do right here, very briefly, is just comment on the friendship between David and Jonathan. Okay? This friendship is going to be very important, and there have been some modern commentaries. Um, You may not be familiar with this discussion at all, but I feel like I need to say it as a pastor There are some commentaries on this verse suggesting that this is somehow a biblical example of a homosexual relationship. And I'm going to tell you that I think that is absurd because the same writer is going to tell us about David's fling with another man's wife. And I just don't think there's any way that he would skip over something like homosexual sin which God had called an abomination, which everybody at that time believed. I think the fact that some would try to impose a 21st century meaning on this relationship says more about how sexualized our culture has become than it does about anything that was going on then. In my opinion, this was an example of a deep, godly friendship between two men, two soldiers... And Jonathan was actually old enough to be David's father, exactly 27 years older um, than David. 
So a better application here would probably be to encourage us, especially men, towards deep friendships. The question would be, do you have a Jonathan in your life? Do you have, as Proverbs says, a friend that sticks closer than a brother? And I'm saying this because in my experience, a lot of men in our culture and even in our churches do not have these kinds of good friendships, and I think that's a shame. This one literally saves David's life more than once. So that's a lot about one verse, but um, felt like it needed to be said. So that's, that's that. Verse 3. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. He says it again. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Okay, this is more than just a grand gesture. Jonathan was the natural heir to the throne of Israel. But he doesn't, for some reason, see David as competition. In fact, he chooses freely to give up his own robes. Remember we said that means glory, his own glory. And he hands it over to David. So this is the son of the king making a covenant with a much younger man, giving up everything for the sake of his friend. And Christians, your your gospel sirens should be going off in your heads right now because this is probably the most Christ-like moment in our sermon today. Jonathan doesn't stop being the king's son when he does this. But he does invite David into that status. And that's exactly what the gospel is. That's exactly what Jesus did for his people. Listen to Galatians 4. It says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So this is, according to the Bible, who we are in Christ Jesus. But you and I both know that that identity is being challenged every single day. It's being tested. I don't wake up every day feeling like I'm an adopted son of the living God. David's status is also going to be tested. Look at verse 5. David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, And David, his tens of thousands. 
And Saul was very angry. This saying displeased him. And he said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me, they have ascribed thousands. I almost want to read this in like a toddler temper tantrum voice. Hmm, they are ascribing, I don't know. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Everyone loves David. Everyone except Saul. And we need to talk about Saul. This is not the same man that we met earlier in the book. If you remember Saul, when he first is called by God, he was this shy young man out looking for his father's lost goats. And back then, Saul seemed to understand that he did not deserve to be king. But now, he obviously thinks he deserves it, even though God's already told him he's going to lose it. And we're beginning to see his heart. Saul, at this point, is full of insecurity and jealousy and pride. And very quickly, that sin that is swelling up in Saul's heart moves to his hands. Twice he tries to kill David with a spear. He sends David off to battle over and over again, hoping that David would die in battle. And then we're going to skip down to chapter 19, verse 1. Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. So Saul's own son spies on his father and intercedes for David. And it works temporarily, okay? So David's life is spared again. But a few verses later, Saul tries to kill David again with a spear. And again, David escapes. This time he goes to his home. Verse 11, Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michal let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. So David's wife now helps him escape. And she even makes, um, we're going to skip this, but it's really cool and interesting story. She makes a fake David. <laughs> and she, she lays the fake David in the bed to deceive her father. Now, I, we skipped over this but for the sake of time in chapter 18, but this is actually, Michal is Saul's daughter, okay? So David's now married to the daughter of the king, and she's even helping David instead of her father. So now Saul is completely alone in his hatred of David. Everybody else loves David. Saul 
is the only one. Even, even his family loves David more than they love him. And we're supposed to feel this, okay? Now, it gets even more tragic, and this is, we're going to read this, and that'll be the conclusion of the story for today. Verse 18. Now, David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Nioth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Nioth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Succah. And he, and he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Nioth in Ramah. And he, that Saul, went there to Nioth in Ramah. The Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went... He prophesied until he came to Nioth at Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes. And he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? Now that should sound familiar. Saul has now become a parody of himself. This is intended to sound almost identical to the story from 1 Samuel 10 when Saul met Samuel for the first time. So what's happening here in this story is that Saul is going to battle against the Word, and the Word wins. That's the most basic way to read this story, okay? So the king is now lying naked on the ground, helpless before the word of God, undone by it. This tall, <clears throat> handsome warrior had been given everything he needed to be a successful king. But he failed to take God seriously. And he's still doing it. He keeps doing it. He thinks David is his enemy, but his real enemy is God. Now that's the story, but what does that mean for us, okay? And I realize this is a bit of a strange, somewhat cryptic story. I want us to consider two things. The first is, I think we need to look at the way David's presence is dividing the household of Saul. David's presence 
was a threat to Saul's kingdom. He was a threat to the system, right? David being there was breaking the illusion of power and security and blessing in Saul's mind, right? Even though God has said, you're going to lose the kingdom, Saul is still the king. And so David being there is is kind of messing with that. It's messing with Saul's mind, and that's exactly what God intended to happen. Listen to these words of Jesus from Matthew 10, verse 34. It says, Do you not think, or do not think that I have come, this is Jesus speaking, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I see in Jesus' words, going back to the Old Testament, this drama between David and Saul and Jonathan and Michal. All of that is packed in here, right? And what Jesus is saying is that his gospel always brings conflict. Jesus himself always brings conflict. It brings conflict with others. It even brings conflict within ourselves. Because before Jesus enters the scene, what everybody tries to do, we try to create our own little kingdom with our own little gods. And things may generally go well until Jesus enters the picture. But when he comes in and challenges your little kingdom, our little gods, he intentionally, not accidentally, he intentionally threatens our little world because it's not real. It's a lie. In his book, The Gospel in Life, Tim Keller, uh, pastor, breaks down our typical idolatries into four categories. He says they are power, approval, comfort, and control. And incidentally, I think we can see all four of these at work in King Saul. If you're seeking power, success, influence, or as our culture calls it, winning, then your greatest fear in life is being humiliated. And we see that fear in King Saul as the women start singing about David's success, don't we? Wait a minute. Why are they praising him? 
If what you seek in this life is approval or affirmation, which often comes in our most important relationships, through a spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, children, parents, then your biggest fear is being rejected. And we see that in Saul as his family starts to reject him in favor of David. If you are in this life seeking comfort or happiness or freedom from stress or pain, then your biggest fear is anything that brings stress or discomfort or pain into your life. And we see that in Saul as God continually forces him to deal with this mysterious evil spirit that's plaguing him. And then finally, if you're seeking control because you want stability in your life or you want to control others' lives, then your biggest fear is uncertainty. And we see this in Saul who has become relentless in his efforts to remove David to remove the threat from his life. And God shows up in all of this. He is systematically taking away Saul's power. Now, God could have just taken the kingdom away like that, right? The moment he said he would. But this drama is playing out for God's people and for us to see something about the human heart. He is systematically taking away Saul's power, his approval, his comfort, and then finally his control as he is literally lying naked on the ground with nothing left but the word of God on his mouth. And this is what God always intends to do to us with the gospel. The point being, Jesus changes everything. He demands our attention. He demands to be taken seriously. He is not going to let us relegate him to some little hour of our lives. He's not going to let us keep up the illusion that we are somehow in control, that we are winning without Him, that we don't need Him. He's not going to let that happen. If He cares about you, He's not. Because, of course, the alternative is, in not letting that happen, He's also inviting us into true joy and peace and stability in Him. That's the first lesson from this story. Second and finally, Saul's impulse to kill David reminds me of the religious leader's impulse to kill Jesus. And it's all over the Gospels. Over and over, you have these important, powerful voices, these religious leaders trying to kill Jesus, and ultimately, the story is they succeeded. Jesus was a threat to their system. He was a threat to their 
vision of the kingdom, and they felt they had no choice but to eliminate that threat. And they thought that they had. But of course, we know the rest of the story. We know that death was always the plan for Jesus. Remember how the Apostle Peter explains this in his sermon in Acts chapter 2. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up, not by accident or by you, but according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you then crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him, Jesus, to be held by it. So, brothers and sisters, it all comes down to this. I think we need to recognize the impulse of our hearts is to reject God's word and to reject his son. I'll never forget um, meeting with a student many years ago. Um, as far as I know, this young man is, is no longer attends church, um, hasn't. Since, since this conversation, to my knowledge. But he grew up in church, and his parents were, and, and still are, I, I believe, devout Christians. And he and I went to lunch, and I asked him about his faith, as I do everybody, and this is what he told me. He said, Mike, I know what you believe. I understand the gospel. I've heard it my whole life. But he said, I just choose not to believe it. I was a little surprised to hear this from a teenager um, who had grown up in the church. And so I asked him why, and this is what he said. Very clearly, very distinctly, I remember what he said. He said, because if I follow Jesus, then I have to change, and I like the way I am now. That was his answer. Now, I think most of us don't have the courage to admit that. But guys, that is our nature. That is the, the problem. That is the problem. Our sin rejects God and rejects His Word, just like Saul just like the religious leaders rejecting Jesus. And at the moment of repentance and faith, the question that we're being asked, the question at hand is always this. Will I crucify Jesus because he's in the way? Because I like who I am and I don't want to change. Will I crucify the Son of God for that? Or 
will I die with him. That's it. That's the question. And is that not exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 10? And whoever does not take his cross and follow me where? To death. It's not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. If you think that your kingdom is what it's all about, that's all you're going to get. And you and I both know it's never going to be enough. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's repentance and faith. And I have to admit to you, and I hope you can admit to yourself, I've always, I've always had much more in common with Saul than with David. I would probably be standing in that crowd yelling, crucify him. And so, Lord, forgive me, a sinner. Let's pray. Father, I wish it were true that everybody loves Jesus, but it's not. There is no kind of liking Jesus. We either love him or we hate him. We are either in submission to your word or we are in rebellion against it. And even those of us that have claimed Jesus and have asked for forgiveness, we still have days, really every day, where we are still fighting and struggling against what you've told us. And so, Christ, we pray that you would do a work that only you can do to move us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Replace our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. Set our minds not on the things of this world, but on the things of your kingdom. Help us to believe that this old story is actually what this world is about. And that nothing else really matters. Your amazing grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.